Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, this is the night before Jesus would be crucified, before he would die. He tells his disciples, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But come on, it's easier to correct one another, to compare ourselves to one another, to judge one another. And if if like enough differences can be compiled, we find all kinds of excuses not to love one another. Look, there are issues of disagreement that matter, right? But few, if any, should define us in such a way that it's what we are known by. And then add to that our current culture where it's almost a sport to criticize and cancel other people who don't agree on every detail with us. Because it's far easier to gather in tribes to oppose what and who we stand against than it is to gather around what we stand for, right? And this is kind of how we talk. What are they known for? Did they support Donald Trump or not? Do they virtue signal the woke trends? Like, do they watch Fox or CNN news? I've been around long enough to use this example. Do they read from the King James or the NIV, right? Like what we're against is often what we're known by. Or are we known for or by our care and love for each other, for how we take care of the poor? Is my output of kindness, encouragement, and help greater than my output of critique or complaint? Am I known by what I'm for or what I'm against? Jesus said, my followers should be known by how they treat each other, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But who's my neighbor? In Luke chapter 10, this religious expert in verse 25, he comes to test Jesus. What must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? But here's the thing. What can anybody do to inherit anything, right? Be born, be adopted. It's a flawed question. So Jesus, in verse 26 of Luke chapter 10, he says, well, what's written in the Old Testament law? How do you read it? In verse 27, the expert says, he answers, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, Hey, your answer sounds good to me. Go do that and you'll have a life that matters. But in verse 29, it says the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked, okay, but who's my neighbor? Now the word justify here, it it means to show that you are right and the other person is wrong. Like this guy wasn't asking a question of Jesus so he could learn, but he was asking a question because he assumed that Jesus' answer would expose Jesus as a heretic, especially in the way he associated with outcasts. And it's interesting 
this idea of neighborly love, it's at the very beginning of the Old Testament law, and it's almost immediately connected with the foreigner among them. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, don't seek revenge against your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then several verses later, Leviticus 19, verse 33, it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your own, your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And then the prophet Ezekiel goes further. When Israel, during his time, returns from exile, in Ezekiel 47, verse 22, he says, the immigrants among you must also receive land as an inheritance, just like you. Now, Israel was the only theocracy, right? Like a government led totally by God. But I wonder why Christians who act like the United States is a theocratic Israel 2.0, why they never quote Leviticus 19 or Ezekiel 47 when they're talking about immigration policy and reform. The man's question to Jesus, his real question wasn't, who's my neighbor? His real question was, who is not my neighbor? Like, I know who I should love, but who can I not love? Who can I ignore, attack, and cancel? By the way, the Old Testament doesn't teach Israel to hate their neighbor. On the contrary, Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 23, it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. And then Proverbs again and again and again. Here's a few. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. If your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. But the Old Testament didn't explicitly require the Israelites to love their enemy. And so they had plenty of interpretive ways to read and understand this, which is why much of their teaching and their tradition said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And so Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, and he said, listen, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who hurt you. If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? So in response to this man's justification of who's my neighbor, Jesus tells one of his most famous stories in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 35. There's a Jewish person coming from Jerusalem, coming from the temple, and they're attacked by robbers. They're stripped, they're beat, they're left for dead. And then a priest and a Levite come by, but they don't help. And the audience, Jesus's audience would have been shocked, but now they anticipate who's coming next. This traditional third person in a series of three, it was always priest, Levite, Israelite, right? A normal, regular Jewish person like they probably thought of themselves. This person is coming and they'll save the day, but this is a Jesus story, right? It's a, it's a setup to punch them in their soul's face. Jesus says a Samaritan comes along, and the Samaritan has compassion on this Jewish man. Samaritans, they were one half Jewish, and they hated Jews, and Jews hated them. 
Like Democrats and Republicans have nothing on this rivalry back then. Centuries of hatred and violence. Jews would rather associate with pagans than they would Samaritans. Now, the word Samaritan in modern culture is synonymous with good helper, but for a Jew then, good Samaritan would be like good rapist or good slave owner. In the, in the film Crash that won the Oscar for 2006, it's about the layered web and complexity of race and our biases. And toward the end of the film, there's an L.A. police officer who saves a trapped woman from burning to death in her car after a crash. But when she initially sees that it's him, she refuses his help, screaming, not you, anyone but you. Because earlier in the film, this white policeman had pulled her and her African-American husband over. He ultimately sexually assaults her as he body searches her. The policeman convinces her, this, this is back at the crash now, he convinces her that he's not going to hurt her, and but, but there's no one else that is there that can do anything. And he, she allows him to save her. He barely saves her before the car explodes. And they embrace. But when she's walking away with the paramedics, she's looking back at him. And she's shaking her head because she hated him. But she was also grateful. And you see in this policeman's eyes something I think that you see in his character in this movie for the first time, and it is regret. Now, his rescuing her, it didn't redeem him. He should still be arrested. And many in Jesus's audience, they were thinking when they're listening to this story, I'd rather die than receive help from a Samaritan. And that's the point, right? In verse 33 of Luke chapter 10, it says the Samaritan saw the man and had compassion on him. He cleans his wounds and he puts the man on his own donkey and he begins to walk. And then he risks his life because he transports him to an inn in Jewish territory of Jericho. Like, what do you think happens when the town of Jericho, Jewish people, see a beaten Jew draped over the donkey of a Samaritan? Like, how does that, those assumptions and community vengeance, how do you think it plays itself out? But the, the parable ends. But Jesus isn't finished with that young man or with you or with me. Jesus asks the man, which of the three was a neighbor? Now, before I tell you what the expert in the law, how he answers, I want you to think about a Trump, a President Trump hater, Right? who cannot acknowledge when the Trump administration did something good, had good policy, right? Or think about a person who, like when they talk about Black Lives Matter, they can't talk about it without making sure you know that they think the founders are Marxists. Jesus asked this man, which of the three was a neighbor? The man says, the one who had mercy, not the Samaritan right? But the one. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and be like the Samaritan. Who's my neighbor is the wrong question because it seeks edges and boundaries and justification. So Jesus flips it. Who must I become a neighbor to? Who must I see as someone worthy to be a neighbor to me? 
I read an article recently of a, of a politically left-leaning journalist who lives in a snowy winter area and her Trump-supporting neighbors shoveled her driveway without being asked. And they did an amazing job. And, and this article is basically her saying, look, I owe them a thank you, but I owe them nothing else. Because just because someone does something good doesn't mean that they are good, which I think is true in principle. But she admits that really all she knows about these people is that they are big time Trump supporters. So in other words, they are other to her. They are an enemy first, not a human who may see the world in a different way than she does. And I think that in the movie Crash, when that policeman helps the woman that he had previously assaulted, he finally sees her as a sacred human being instead of an object. The work is not waiting for a crash to wake you up to the reality that all creation is sacred, but every human being is a divine neighbor. The work is being proactive. It's building thought muscles like these. And, and, and I'll warn you, there should be something here to make every one of you mad on some level. But you build thought muscles like Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol. They're my neighbor. Or woke warriors seeking to cancel others with a level of passion that implies that they themselves have always been righteous and always will be righteous. They are my neighbor. The evangelical Christians that I listened to on the radio in the 90s, who I think started cancel culture, by demanding that Christians boycott buying from certain companies who gave money to LGBT causes. And I only say LGBT because the QIA hadn't been added yet. These evangelical boycotters concerned more with American culture than God's kingdom. They are my neighbor. The young men from the local cult who knock at my door, they are my neighbors. Americans who invest time and energy and soul into the cult of left-wing politics, the politics of intent doesn't matter because my feelings outweigh facts and the louder I scream, the more sincere I am. Or the cult of right-wing right -wing politics of aggressive pseudo-family -fam values, outraged at every kind of sexual sin except for divorce, and the idolatry of draping the flag over the cross. Both political cult members are my neighbors. Donald Trump is my neighbor. Joe Biden is my neighbor. The white nationalists who uh, stormed Charlotte chanting, Jews will not replace us. They are my neighbor. The college administrators who plan to allow racially segregated dorms and calling that anti-racist, they are my neighbors. The folks who post about the China flu or Kung flu, but dismiss the coinciding Asian hate crimes, they're my neighbors. Those who constantly post of the in, the inherent evils of America without ever acknowledging the, the irony that the unique freedom to critique their country comes 
from and is protected by that said country. They're my neighbors. The folks who still clutter up my Facebook page about how the 2020 election was stolen. They're my neighbors. The homeless man begging me for money for food, but rejecting my offer to walk next door to the restaurant and buy him a meal. He's my neighbor. The critical race theorist telling Fortune 500 companies that I'm intrinsically racist because I'm white. She's my neighbor. The Fox News anchor who shrugs and says, why are we always talking about race? Look how far black Americans have come. That news anchor is my neighbor. The overly spiritual who thinks Satan is behind every corner and that God will answer every prayer of those that have true faith. They're my neighbor. The authors of the California anti-racist math curriculum that I read a few weeks ago who claim that the focus in math on getting the right answer, the word right was in quotation marks, that is white supremacy. These curriculum authors are my neighbors. The QAnon believing folks who claim that there's a secret cabal of Satan worshiping cannibalistic pedophile Democrats that only Donald Trump could defeat. Those people are my neighbors. Those who say science is wrong, that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man and that children should be taught that gender is fluid. The people who believe that, they're my neighbors. If you, if your aim is to defeat those that you consider on the other side of the cultural war, then you're a part of the same win-lose game, whether you actually are on the correct side or not, because Christians should be known by our extreme kindness and love while at the same time standing for truth. Respectfully, I add respectfully because Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, worship Christ as Lord and always be prepared to explain why you have hope in Christ. But do this, he says, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Jesus's Good Samaritan story exposes our tendency, the human tendency, regardless of what you look like, to gather in tribes around what and who you're against than what and who you are for. Christians are called to be for all people because all people are neighbors made in God's divine image. So allow me to close by using something Paul wrote to kind of help us put some flesh on this and make it practical. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 20. It's a deep well, and I'm just going to scratch the surface here, but I'm going to give you six quick truths about loving other people. First, love is sincere. Romans 12, verse 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil cling to what is good. The word sincere literally means without hypocrisy. That word comes from the ancient Greek theater. Hypocrite was an actor, one behind a mask. Following Christ and his way of love, it's, it's not a stage to perform on, like you hear about a friend struggling. Instead of telling them you're praying for them, pray for them. Or even better, pray for them and offer help. You hear of a believer who's a friend of yours, who has fall, fallen to a sin, who's messed up. Don't gossip about him. Write him a note of encouragement, or even better, invite them to lunch to talk. Love does. It's a verb. Love is sincere. Number two, love is family. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Those words, devoted and brotherly love, originally, in those original language, it was applied to blood family. But here it describes God's way of love among believers. 
how the way you honor older members of your family, honor everyone like that above yourself. Number three, love is generous. Romans 12 verse 13, it says, share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. I got this from my mentor, Mark Moore, it's, and he admits this too. It's an oversimplification, but it's been said that socialism is, is, is basically this. What's, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. And capitalism is basically what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. But God's kingdom says something like what's mine is God's, so I will share it. And that word, practice hospitality, it literally is love strangers. Because while wisdom is needed, God's way isn't just love my tribe, right? I'm a Christian, I'm going to love Christians. But God's way is love all people, regardless of their belief. Number four, love is paradoxical. Verse 14 of Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless them, don't curse them. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Paul expounds with bless them. The word bless literally means celebrate or praise. So together, Jesus and Paul, what you've got in the least is pray for your enemies' success and for their good. Now, this is a command, but we should do this because it actually works. It changes our heart. Like Gandhi has shown us that. Martin Luther King Jr. has shown us that. Other movements based in the teaching of Jesus, which both of those men's movements were based in the the teachings of Jesus, it shows us this again and again, that love is paradoxical. Five, love is empathetic. Verse 15, Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. There's a powerful and ancient practice in Judaism called sitting Shiva. It has its roots in scripture. Shiva is the Hebrew word for seven, the number of days for mourning when someone dies. And family and friends would come along and sit and stay near the grieving family for seven days. There was an understanding that there would be anger and shock and denial in the early stages, but there would also be times of sweet memories, telling stories and expressing joy because love is empathetic. And finally, Love is unified. Verse 16 of Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Literally, have the same mind. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you're going to agree on everything, even about what the Bible means, right? But it does mean that as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, that love is what we rally around. Love is what we should be known for. Love one another. Jesus says, by this Everyone will know that you belong to me. This is what Jesus says. Now listen, there are bandits, robbers on the road still, just like in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, grifters and opportunists who seek to kill, steal, and destroy. And sometimes they're after us, and sometimes they are us. And all around us are Samaritans and Jews and Black, and White, and Latino, and Asian, and Native American, and Middle Eastern, and Pacific Islanders. There are Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Jewish, atheists, Hindus, Mormons. And there are issues of justice and morality. Some issues captivate you and your attention more than they captivate the attention of others. There is pain and trauma around every corner, but there is also beauty and hope. It often depends on where your focus is, right? So, As the world spins from chaos and confusion, but also from mystery and wonder, may you 
be captivated and even distracted by Christ and his way of love. May you see, as Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, that in Christ we live and move and exist. In Christ, may you experience hope and courage, peace, joy, and love. And may you and I become known by that love, seeing that all creation is sacred, but every human is my divine neighbor. May you see, because once you see, you can't unsee. And along the way, on the road, may you become a good neighbor to all. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.